Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Tom Dunkel. He has over 27 years of real estate, finance, and investing experience. His company, Bellrose Asset Management, is involved in private lending, distressed debt, and self-storage complexes. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Tom. Charles, it's great to be with you and the listeners. Thanks so much for having me. So over almost three decades, uh, can you give us a little bit about your background, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in uh, real estate investing? Sure. Wow. When you say it that way, man, it <laughs> makes <laughs> me feel a little old, but no, it's true. I guess, uh, you know, time kind of flies when you're having fun, but yeah, I started out in corporate America after business school. I was doing mergers and acquisitions and uh, raising institutional capital. Uh, you know, we were doing, you know, $100 million deals, $50 million deals, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I was in the aerospace industry, the IT industry, um, and so just learned a lot, had a great foundation there, but I always knew I wanted to go out and do my own thing. So after you know corporate stints here and there, uh, building that foundation, I jumped into uh, my entrepreneurial career in 2006, so uh, going on about 17 years ago. And uh, of course, that was 2006, uh, you know, wanted to get into real estate, timing was awful, right? Uh, so here I kind of left my cushy corporate world and you know jumped into my entrepreneurial world and, and proceeded to get my butt kicked pretty good those next uh, few years. But uh, you know, it was a great learning experience. You know, looking back on it, uh, certainly has uh, trained my mind uh, for uh, you know our investing today because uh, of course we're you know we've got some rocky things going on economically. So I've I've got that background not only from the Great Recession but I also I was in technology investment banking. Oh when the tech bubble burst back in the early 2000s. So I've, I've definitely seen bubbles. I've seen how they can build up and burst and, you know, the kind of the outcome from there. So I think that's also given me a good perspective uh, to be, to be an investor. So um, started out doing residential stuff, you know, started doing some uh, hard money lending as well, but uh, discovered distressed mortgage debt uh, back in 2010. Uh, so we've been doing that. Uh, my, connected with my partner, Joe Downs. We've been partners 13 years. Uh, so we've been doing distressed debt uh, that whole time. Uh, and so that business has allowed us to uh, branch off into other things. 
on. So like I mentioned, hard, hard money lending. Uh, but we started, you know, we wanted to find a business where we felt where we could really build a team. We could really um, take advantage of a dislocated uh, kind of fragmented market. Uh, we wanted to, we wanted to uh, be able to really build a business plan, you know, for the future, put systems in place so that as the business grew, you know, we could bring in people to uh, uh, take over our jobs so we could fire ourselves and, you know, just kind of play more advisory roles. So we found self-storage in about 2017, 2018 started really getting educated about it. Uh, 2019, we joined a self-storage mastermind group, which is a nationwide group of, of uh, uh, self-storage investors. Uh, through that process, we learned we had some gaps in our team that we had, that we needed to fill. So Joe and I are, are good numbers guys, deal guys, uh, putting the financing together, those kinds of things are our strengths, you know, running the projections and the underwriting, that sort of thing. But we didn't have the skill set of, of finding the uh, off-market deals. Mm. So uh, through our mastermind group, we found Tim Kane. He's an expert at, at finding off-market deals. So we brought him in. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we, you can find the money and find the deal, but now you, you got to run the thing, right? Yeah. So uh, so we had that operations uh, gap. So through again, through our mastermind community, we were able to find Catherine East. Uh, she's a 17-year industry veteran. She's former executive director of the Missouri State Self-Storage Owners Association. She's done management consulting, transition work, and auditing work on hundreds of facilities around the country. And so we brought him, her in uh, to help us on the operation side. So then when we had the team together, uh, we had the vision, and then we went out and bought our first facility in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're about to close next week on our 12th facility, which will put us up over 300,000 square feet of storage and uh, portfolio worth, uh, you know, 35, 30, 35 million ish, give or take. Wow. Fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. So on our show here, we, uh, we discussed mostly like multifamily investing. So can you tell mm -hmm. us why self-storage complexes are a great investment class, asset class to invest into? Sure. Uh, I, uh, actually been a, a passive investor in apartments, uh, since 2013. So I'm very okay. familiar with that asset class. Um, but there's uh, a few things that we really, really like about storage. And if, if you'll indulge me, I can actually, I can share a couple pictures with you. So this is the first picture. I know you can't see it, but basically it's this line, this nice flat, smooth line on the top. That's self-storage occupancy for the last 40 years. The, the line that you saw going like this, that's the, uh, that's the U.S. economy bouncing up and down like crazy. So we like storage because it's very steady. It's been steady through ups, downs, and everywhere in between. Uh, the other chart I'll share with you is um, penetration, market penetration. So in other words, folks are starting to adopt. You'll see the you saw the curve is going up like this. That means that more and more people are using self-storage. It used to be like maybe uh, eight or so percent. Now it's up to like 10 and a half percent of households in America are using storage. I know that doesn't sound like a huge percentage increase, but when you consider that there's 120 million households in the US, every 1% increase means 1.2 million additional self-storage customers. There's only about 50,000 self-storage facilities in the US. So that keeps that demand nice and strong. Um, the next slide I'll share with you is our you can't even see it. it doesn't register right here, but this is the delinquency on self storage. 
you know, you've got retail way up there, lodging up way up there, office way up there. Self-storage facilities do not default on their debt. And that's because of the last slide, which I'll share with you, is this is our KPIs that we track on a weekly basis. And again, I know you probably can't see these numbers and stuff, but our operating expense ratio across our portfolio is 36.7%. So let's call it 37%. So as compared to multifamily, uh, it's kind of the reverse, right? Multifamily, you know, your operating expenses are typically, you know, maybe 70%, which leaves 30% net operating income left over to pay the debt and the investors. Self-storage is the other way around. It's about 30, 35% operating expense ratio, which leaves us 70, you know, 65, 70% of uh, net operating income to pay our debt. And then we certainly have plenty left over to share with investors. So those are the big reasons why we we like multifamily, uh, but we like self-storage better. Okay. That's interesting because um, as I spoke to someone, an operator, self-storage operator a, a couple of years ago, and they used to say that how they would figure out if a market was had enough self-storage, let's say it would be, I think it was eight square feet per person in this market. So now has that gone up to nine or 10? So now with, because there's been a lot of building of self-storage in the last 10 sure. years. And apparently mm -hmm. it's been, you know, it's it's actually not been an issue because of the more demand. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a hundred percent right, Charles. So you're, you're right about, and it, it varies from market to market, but mm -hmm. generally speaking about eight square feet per person is what we call equilibrium. So if we go into a market and we see that there's less than eight feet per person, uh, that that could be an indication that that market's underserved, mm -hmm. which was which would make it attractive, right? As compared to the other side of the scale where it might be 15, 16, 20 square feet uh, per person, that would give us an indicate that would give us a little pause because it would seem that that market is oversupplied. But yeah, the the building that's been going on. Uh, like I said, there's 50,000 square, uh, there's 50,000 facilities in the country. I think the last couple of years we've been adding maybe four or 500 per year. So it's really not a ton more square footage. And, and as you know, too, uh, being in real estate, it, everything's very localized, right? Mm -hmm. So we look at those one, three and five mile radius areas around a particular facility that we're interested in. And then, you know, we can move that especially if we're looking at land to develop, we can move that radius around mm -hmm. until we find an area where the supply index is low, but there's still a path of progress and there's still population growth and job growth. And those are going to be things that we'll find attractive in a, in a particular market. When you're doing those absorption rates and occupancy rates and uh, figuring out if it's underbuilt or overbuilt, do other classes of self-storage, I'm not sure if this is the right talk, you know, how you uh, <laughs> would classify it, but different class of self-storage. I mean, I've, you can definitely drive by beautiful four-story, all air conditioned. Uh, you know, I mean, you can put in there your stuff, you put wine in there, all these different things <laughs> that can go into something in a nice area. That's and right. then you might have it 15 minutes out, but you know, something that's been, let's just say it's uh, a little bit more classic and vintage. And something, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so with that being said, is that how you work? How do you work that into? Are you seeing when these things were built and then figuring mm -hmm. out, or if they're under AC, if they're not? Sure. Yeah. The 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 specific uh, databases that we subscribe to, they're specific to uh, self storage. So the these the, these resources actually are break down 
the market into climate controlled and, and non-climate controlled storage. Um, and certainly, you know, we're, where you're going to see those big, shiny, newer uh, buildings, as are typically going to be in your metro areas or maybe, you know, just outside, um, we're, we have found our niche in the more secondary and tertiary areas where we're buying the, the B-class and the C-class facilities that are mom and pop, you know, earlier vintage, uh, to your point, and maybe they're not climate controlled, um, but we maybe we can add some climate control if the market would support that. But what we found is that that's where the opportunities really lie to increase value in a short period of time and create those great returns for our investors, because a lot of times those are going to be mom and pop run facilities you know, they're not really on top of the market and where rates are, and they, they don't really leverage technology uh, to, uh, you know, market themselves and do their dynamic pricing and, you know, rent to folks on the on their smartphone. You know, so they're not really doing those kinds of things. And so we're able to go in, take that B or C facility and spruce it up, add technology, and then really crank up the, um, the NOI through our, our rate increases and, and our use of technology. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. That's a great area to be in with that uh, tertiary market, secondary market, because I feel that those are a lot more recession resilient because you're going to have people that don't want to get rid of their stuff, but they might move it from that metro area 15, 20 minutes out to be able to save uh, a considerable mm -hmm. percentage if something happened in their life, which is usually when I find uh, people are using self-storage is when they're having a major change in their life for the most part. That's right. Yeah, that that's what the you know big demand driver, right? Is when people are moving or downsizing or dislocated or you know something's going on. Uh, they're they're looking to you know store their furniture like during the during the pandemic, right? All of a sudden, you know, gazillions of Americans had to and other places as well had to change that that extra bedroom into an office, right? Uh, but they didn't want to chuck their bedroom furniture. They so they put it in storage. Um, and so they, and then similarly, yeah, they, they had to clear out their garage to, you know, make it into their gym or whatever they, they had to do. So they definitely, you know, needed more space at home, which drove demand at uh, storage facilities. Now that is substantially behind us. Mm -hmm. uh, we're back into kind of the normal seasonality of self-storage. Uh, so right now we're in February. Uh, you know, so through the winter months, obviously, you know, Things are not as active. People are, are not really moving as much. So uh, traditionally, that's when self-storage, you know, is, the occupancy goes down a little bit. Um, but we're now heading into spring where people are, you know, the spring real estate market's going to pick up. People are going to be buying, selling houses, yeah. and that's going to drive demand. So that's typically what's, what's going to make that curve kind of head back up during yeah. the uh, spring, summer, and into the fall. It's amazing how that changes so much. And I know it's in self-storage, as you just said, but I mean, everybody knows it's in multifamily as well, if you're, what you said about the housing, but mm -hmm. it's just crazy when we get reports from December or January on rental reports for the week from different property managers to going into March, it's like night and day, you know, it's amazing how people, and I, we're mainly in Florida, so it's not like the weather, you know, and it's an issue for people moving. It's just how the seasons work. So it's, it's very That's interesting. Right. Yeah. That's right. So what types of risks do self-storage investors need to be aware of? Sure. Well, uh, as an investor myself, I've certainly you know, learned about risk along the way. Um, and I, I, would, I would say one of the key risks that I, that I think a lot of passive investors um, overlook is um, 
the sponsor of the deal. So we actually have an ebook that's available on our website. Uh, it's a it's a book that um, that I've put together with my partners, and, and it's just you know kind of the things I've learned along the way in my journey as an investor. And so the book's called the it's called the Safe Checklist, and Safe is a uh, is an acronym. S is for sponsor, A is for asset, F is for financials, and E is for exit. So I think a lot of people get excited about the the asset and the financials. Uh, you know, they get excited about the deal. They really need to start with the sponsor. Yeah. I think is a, is a critical area where a lot of people just kind of skim past that, um, or they you know they get a glossy brochure, or they see a fancy mm. website, and that's kind of enough for them. And then they go right into the deal. They get excited about the deal, and you know maybe it is a good deal, maybe it's not. But I would encourage folks to spend a lot more time uh, vetting the sponsor. Would you consider, um, you know, other mistakes that you might see because you work a lot with high net worth individuals? Do you see mm -hmm. any other kind of common mistakes uh, other than not vetting sponsors? Because, I mean, obviously that's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I I always encourage folks to to really understand exactly what it is that they're investing in. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing to me. Like, like uh, I know crypto is really hot right mm -hmm. now, right? So what, what are you investing in? I guess if you're really into that world and you're into the technology and the blockchain, all those kinds, of, maybe you can explain it to your teenager or you know to a, a, an older person but i i can't i mean i i like that's one of the things i really like about self-storage it's a very simple business right i mean it's a metal box with a concrete floor and a roll-up door and people yeah. you know, keep their stuff in there there's no plumbing there's no electricity mm -hmm. right it's very straightforward but i think i think people uh need to understand you know that they're buying like if they invest in one of our syndications they're buying membership interests in an LLC usually uh, that is that is going to own this uh, land, this real estate that has this storage business sitting on it. And I know maybe that sounds very simplistic, but I think some people say, "Oh, well, I'm you know I'm putting money into you know they think they're investing directly into the land, but you know they're really not." And so I think it's those distinctions are important. Uh, as an investor, so you know, you understand what it is that you're getting into and also how long you're going to be tied up in that. I think that's another area where folks really need to need to understand because they might meet someone they like that has a deal and the returns sound great. And then they realize, oh, geez, I'm stuck in this for seven years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I definitely see that. And I know we've gone through this last few years where deals that were supposed to be five or seven years were two or three. And I just have to keep on telling investors it's, you know, it's five to seven. Obviously, our goal is to hit these numbers and be out sooner. Right. But I mean, you have no idea, you know what I mean? What could happen in the next uh, in the next three or four years that will slow it down. Um, yeah. So you, you brought up different syndications. And um, what, what do you see the main benefits between a single asset syndication where it might be one single complex, self-storage complex mm -hmm. in your business versus someone that says, we're going to buy five this year and you can invest into a fund? Yeah, that's a good question. And I know there's uh, certainly different philosophies uh, supporting supporting both sides. As an investor myself, I personally like the the deal by deal model. Um, and actually, for a company like Bellrose Storage Group, it's actually it's actually more of a hassle for us. It's a more administrative burden to do it deal by deal. But we still do it that way because, uh, again, as an investor myself, 
uh, I like to know that my dollars are going into a specific asset. And so like we were talking about a minute ago, you know, I know that it's a facility, you know, in Douglasville, Georgia, you know, it's, it's 45,000 square feet. Uh, you know, I, so I, I, I can look at as a, as my own, to do my own due diligence, I can look at that market myself. I can look at that asset myself. And, you know, I think the, give the investor a, more clarity, more transparency, and also just better alignment with the sponsor is how I feel about that. Uh, I know there are funds out there, you know, they raise a lot of money, you know, they go to deploy it. And sometimes, so that's where I think maybe there's a, a little bit of a disparity between the sponsor and the investor, because if, the sponsor has all this money, they might feel like they're under pressure to deploy it. And so they might, you know, cut a corner here or there to get a deal done because they don't want to be sitting on all this, all this capital. So, you know, deal by deal, you know, it's, we raise the money, you know, for raising 2 million bucks to, to buy a facility you know, until 2 million's raised, we buy the facility and we're off and running and then we go and do it again. But I just feel uh, as an investor myself and as a sponsor, I just, I feel like that aligns interests much better. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And there's, I understand the pros with the funds, but the thing that was with the individual syndications, you're able to really drill down on your due diligence. And also I don't like the idea. It's like people, you know, you have sponsors living off of acquisition fees and they're really pushing stuff that doesn't kind of doesn't fit. And that's what I see, or I feel might be a thing with certain funds where, hey, we're going to buy five of them and, you know, mm -hmm. two or three, two is like stream, uh, you know, screaming deals. And then one of them's okay. And the, you know, the other two are just, you know, they're okay, but they're, you know what I mean? Sure. And I think if you really do your due diligence into them, see the funding, you see the area, like you said, um, how local it is, the location of it. Cause you'll see like, you'll see different properties, multifamily or, or self-storage that are in fantastic locations. There's never going to be right. an issue renting these, you know what I mean? That's but right. they might put something that's not the great in, you know, in, in the fund. And if you're putting money in, in, you know, you know, April, uh, you don't know what they're buying in August. So <laughs> it's, right. it's something that everybody, you know, I know they put out a plan and they tell you what it is, but I definitely yeah. agree with what you're doing. It's, it's, you know, I, I definitely agree how that works. Cause that's how we work. Cause we're not going to push it. And if we do deals, we do deals. And if we wait a few months between them, that's what we're going to do. Right. I would, uh, I would just comment on the fee situation there. We do charge acquisition fees. And the reason is we have a great team and they don't work for free. So, you know, yeah. we have a great team on the front end that's looking for acquisitions. Like, like I mentioned earlier, the, the off-market acquisitions, I mean, that takes a lot of work. Yeah. We, we're probably looking at 50 deals for every one that we close on. Uh, and so, and then we have the whole, all the administration and the accounting and the tax and taxes and insurance, all that stuff that needs to be handled. So we do charge fees up front. It ends up in the grand scheme of things being a small percentage, you have probably 15% or less of our total compensation on a deal, but it's just something that helps us as a, as a company to you know, pay our great employees yeah. and keep the lights on and et cetera. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with it. We we charge acquisition fees as well. It's just something that um, you see some sponsors out there that might be, you know, they're really fee intensive in the beginning and mm -hmm. they're, you know, they might be beginning sponsors and this is kind of how they're generating some of their income as well, where it's sure. like you said, the traditional two and 20 or how, how we normally work in this, in this uh, private equity world is that, like you mm -hmm. said, it's supposed to keep the lights on and that's the whole yeah. goal. And then you're really making your money on your carry. So that's right. That's right. And again, I mean, as long as we're talking about, you know, potential risks that investors should look out for, I, I would say it's a risk if your sponsor is not charging a fee because yeah. 
how are they, you know, how are they keeping the lights on and how, you know, are they really a legitimate sponsor if, if they don't have that team behind them that, you know, that are getting paychecks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the one thing whenever you hear about acquisition fee, you know, with a new potential investor and that's their question, it's usually not going to work out because you've never vetted properties before and how that's many right. properties you have to go through and 50 seems, I would imagine sometimes you guys even do more than 50, you know, properties you're looking at. So, sure. um, especially in a tight market might go up to hundred. So that's a lot of work and that's you right. have to be compensated on that. But, um, so Tom, over the years, what have you found to be your biggest challenge? Uh, biggest challenge has been, uh, just getting the, getting the right people. I would have to say, uh, you know, when, when we do find the right person and you know, it, it's like, you know, it just helps to explode the business. But if you, if you find someone and, you know, you do your best to interview and, you know, through that whole process. Uh, but if someone gets through that process, you know, you can kind of tell in that first, you know, 90, you know, 120 days, if they're really going to be a, a fit or not. And so that, you know, obviously not everyone's going to be a total hundred percent rock star every day all the time. But I think over the years, that's been where we've had the most success is where we've found the best people. Right. Okay. Um, so Tom, over the years uh, from finance to real estate, um, how has your relationship towards money changed over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, early on, of course, you know, you're, you're, struggling, you're trying to make that money, you know, pay the mortgage, raise the family, you know, save for college, those kinds of things, you know, thankfully, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited and very blessed to be in a place right now where I'm kind of in a position to be giving back. So uh, to me now, uh, money is a tool to uh, start giving back to communities, giving back to uh, you know, the, the people uh, in the world that I, I want to help. So uh, I've been able to help start scholarships. Uh, I've been able to uh, build houses in poor areas. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, and, and then just, again, investing in our people. Uh, so we, we invest in our people, you know, we, we do, you know, fun things at the office, you know, we do those kinds of fun things that the company's paying for. But now I see it as a, as a tool to, to do, to do good in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so obviously you took a huge leap back in the mid two thousands and um, how have you said that, you know, you've made progress in your life by getting out of your comfort zone? Yeah, I mean, that's the only way to make progress, right, is, uh, you know, if you're just sitting back doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get the same results, right? So I knew it when I was in the corporate world, um, I remember like doing the uh, retirement calculator, right? Like you can go to your 401k company, you know, they have that retirement calculator on there. I was like, this is not you know, going to do it for me. You know, if I <laughs> saved, you know, 10 or 15% of my income for, you know, 30 years, you know, I might be able to have some kind of retirement. I mean, that just didn't, didn't settle well with me. So I, I had to force myself to go out and, and, and take a, take a leap of faith and, and just go for it. Um, so I, I find myself now like continually uh, trying to learn new things and get out of my comfort zone and, um, you know, push into different areas. And so now, you know, being leadership, I mean, le leadership is tough, right? I mean, you have, now you're, um, I work more on probably the humanitarian kind of the personal side of the business, uh, probably more so than I do on like the number crunching side of right. the business anymore. 
Um, and so that's been a whole learning experience. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. I think um, it's the, it's the best way to grow and achieve is to, you got to just keep pushing. So thanks so much for coming on today, Tom. Can, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? I know you have your safe checklist and some other items. Sure. Yeah, Charles, it's been great. Thank you, buddy. Um, again, I'm Tom Dunkel. I'm the chief investment officer here at Bellrose Storage Group. You can find us at bellrosestoragegroup.com. You can also find our uh, company page on Facebook under Bellrose Storage Group, where we have uh, we post my uh, podcast interviews and a lot of other um, articles and things that we find are interesting or valuable. We try to give back to our uh, community by just you know educating and sharing things that we're seeing out there. Um, and then, yeah, the safe book, the safe ebook is available on our website. Uh, it's totally free. And I, I, we call it a checklist because we really do want people to print it out and like actually, you know, mark it up, take notes on it. And then when they look at the next deal, you know, print it out again and, and look at that next deal. But um, yeah, this has been great, Charles. Appreciate the, the time and the invitation. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, we're looking forward to connecting here sometime in the future. So have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.